Today's guest on the podcast is Elena Aguilar. She's a writer, leader, teacher, coach, and podcaster. She's also the author of seven highly acclaimed books, which include The Art of Coaching, Onward, Cultivating Emotional Resilience in Educators, and the PD book, Seven Habits That Transform Professional Development. She's also a frequent contributor to Edutopia, ASCD's Educational Leadership, and Ed Week Teacher. I found Elena through her organization, Bright Morning Consulting. It's an organization committed to helping individuals and organizations create the conditions for transformation. She's taught tens of thousands of people how to have conversations to build a more just and equitable world. You can tune in to Elena sharing these ideas on her podcast called The Bright Morning Podcast. Please join me in welcoming Elena to the Brave Writer Podcast today. Welcome, Elena, to the Brave Writer Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julie, for having me. I'm really eager to talk to you. I think you have so much to offer our audience. I know that you work in professional development, coaching educators, and you also have a deep interest in equity and inclusion. My community is made up of parents who often don't see themselves in those roles, even though they are educators, coaches, and leaders of their own children, and in many instances are involved in their larger communities. So I was wondering if we can explore the practices that these parents can use at home to lead their families and children in a healthy life of learning. That sounds great. So as you said, I work in the area of professional development, but I really think about the work I do as focusing on teaching people how to communicate with each other. I happen to work in schools and we focus on serving the needs of children, but really these strategies are ones that help us more effectively communicate and connect with each other and thrive. And so I think about my work is I teach you how to thrive. I have an 18-year-old son and I have been using my coaching strategies with him for many years and many times when I don't use them. And so for for many, many, many months when he started high school, I found myself at the bottom of the stairs at 645 screaming, Orion, get up. You're going to be late. You're going to be late. And then I finally had this moment when it clicked. I was like, oh, I could use my coaching strategies. It took me months. I'm being honest. Uh, And then I started having these conversations. So I think about coaching as the set of strategies you use when you want to help someone learn and grow. And there are times when as teachers, as leaders, as parents, we have to take what I would call a directive stance. We have to say, you cannot run into the middle of the street, period. We're not going to have a discussion about it. And then there are times when we can take really more of a coaching stance, a facilitative coaching stance. And that's what I started doing with my son because he was getting late to high school almost every day in the beginning of his ninth grade. And so when he would get home, I would have these conversations where I would say, you know what, how did you feel today, this morning, basically guiding him through the morning of frantic getting ready, rushing, getting on the train, like getting, having to run to school walking into a class 30 seconds late, all of that. 
And it was about cultivating his awareness around the choices he was making and helping him identify other choices he could make. When I'm coaching teachers, I always say, my goal is to work my way out of a job with you, really. I want you to be able to make the decisions you need to make when I'm not here. Same thing with a kid, right? We want to help them learn how to make really good decisions so that once they're away from us, they can make them on their own. That makes perfect sense. In fact, you talk about that there are, you talk about the roles of being a coach, a therapist, and an educator. And I loved your message that a coach may not be a trained therapist, but they still have that similar role in the lives of the people they work with. You talk about acknowledging feelings, creating space for those feelings, and offering space for reflection, which, by the way, is my favorite part of that three-step. Could you talk a little bit about that in the parenting education space, how we end up in this coaching therapist role sometimes, even though we don't know that we are able to do it? Sure. I really appreciate that question. So I, in some ways, wish we could just strip ourselves away from all of these labels or strip the labels off of us. Because here's the bottom line is we are human beings and human beings have emotions. And we have been socialized to think that emotions belong here or they don't belong there. Or you have to be a therapist to talk to someone about emotions. Or if you want to process your emotions, you need to go do that in a 50-minute session once a week with a therapist. It's a very inhumane, unholistic, unhelpful model that we have that emotions need to be relegated to certain spaces and so on. And so if we just accept the fact that human beings have emotions and we experience them and we deserve to have space and time to process them and we can move through them, then that means anybody can learn the skills to talk to anybody else about emotions, whether that is our partners, our children, our students, our colleagues, our direct reports, we can use strategies. And so I talk about the the strategies most simplistically are to simply acknowledge emotions, acknowledge and accept the fact that human beings have them. Oh, I can see that you're experiencing some strong emotions right now. Do you want to share what's coming up for you? We can, that is a way to create space for them to say, look, I see that they're present for you. Do you want to talk about them? And then to offer space for reflection. And that's where we can get more refined in terms of learning some questions that we can ask, some ways of communicating. I, emotions are normal. I acknowledge them. I recognize that you have them. I'm not scared of your emotions. Here's a little bit of space. What's coming up for you? So there's there's so many simple strategies, but a lot of this comes back to first holding the belief that emotions have a right to be expressed, experienced, communicated. They're just a normal part of being a human being. And actually, we can learn from them. They can be our teachers, our friends. They can be invaluable in the experience. They help us learn how to thrive, which, as I said, that's really my mission. Yeah. And it seems like sometimes those emotions can seem illegal, right? There are certain ones we don't really want to make space for. One of the things that I love that I noticed in your work is that you give the advice that we sit and reflect on what we just did or what we just learned or what the interaction was all about. When we talk about reflecting on some of these powerful emotions, sometimes it triggers a lot of experiences in us of memories of anger or a feeling of being threatened or defensive. 
How do you disarm yourself when a child is coming at you with these powerful emotions in the context of learning and it feels invalidating? I've got to think teachers go through that experience too. Yeah, that's a great question. So I have good news and bad news. The good news is that (laughs) it's all up to you and that's the bad news. And what I mean by that is that so much of our coaching, our parenting, our who we are in the world starts with ourselves, starts in ourselves, starts in our childhoods. And in order to be the people we want to be, the coaches, the parents, the leaders, we need to explore, address, and heal from those experiences. The overwhelming majority of people have a lot that we need and deserve to process from our childhood. There is increasingly more information about uh, trauma and trauma talked about as big T and little t trauma. And I'll just tell you my understanding of all of that research has deeply informed how I coach, how I lead, and how I parent. And it brings me back to this, oh, wow, I have to attend to myself. I have to understand my own relationship with anger, how I experienced other people's anger as a child so that I'm not triggered when my own teenager expresses his very normal anger. Mm. So that I can be present with him now and not have my early childhood pain reactivated. And so, yeah, it's challenging. We all need and deserve the space and the time to understand ourselves and our emotions. That makes complete sense. It's something I advocate a lot in Brave Writer that so much of what we're doing as parents with our children is going to cause that memory from childhood or from our previous experiences. And yet as adults, we are the more mature party in that relationship. So it's really incumbent on us to do that self-work, right? The self-awareness, the recovery, and the healing. Uh, In your work with coaches, you talk about continuous learning as over and against consuming information. So often in our schools and even in our home schools, educators mistake learning for skill building. And so I want to read a quote of yours that really spoke to me. You wrote, for me, learning means going beyond the acquisition of new knowledge. Learning requires skillful implementation, followed by regular reflection, there's that word again, and evaluation, and then course adjustments based on lessons learned. Learning requires repeating that cycle over and over. It requires deliberate, ongoing practice. How do you keep that practice fresh? How do you stay motivated? What kinds of reflections should we make after we work on a skill that we want to build? What helps us grow that skill? Oh, so many good questions. Uh, One way to think about this also is that all of us, most of us, when we're learning something, have what we can think of or understand as a knowing, doing gap. We might know something, we might have read about it or heard about it, but we're not necessarily just able to do it. And that's where we need to be building skill. That's where we need to practice. That's where we need to get feedback on what we're doing. And so one of the ways that we can stay fresh and motivated and reflect is by really paying attention to what's the impact of what we're trying to do. What Mm. feedback do we get? What feedback can we solicit, whether that's from our children, our partners, our students? 
how can we, you know, especially with older children, we can say, I'm really working on this. I used to tell my son, um, I'm really working on being more patient when I'm feeling activated by something you say. And so you might see me take a couple of deep breaths. Sometimes I might say to you, I'm going to think about that and get back to you. And he would kind of look at me like, what? Mom, you're so weird. Why are you telling me all this? I'm like, I'm being transparent. I'm just sharing my process with you. I want you to understand what's going on. And then sometimes I would ask him, I really, I would ask him for feedback. I would say something like, yeah, when you came home yesterday and slammed the door and I shouted at you and then I said, hold on, I'm going to go take a few minutes to calm down. Then I'm going to talk to you. Like how was, you know, so I know it might sound a little contrived or awkward and learning is awkward and we've got to try different things. We want to figure out like, what's the impact I want to have? So talking about, you know, specifically my child, I think a lot about what kind of relationship do I want to have with him now when he's an adult? What what are the characteristics of that relationship? How can I, having a teenager, my husband and I both taught teenagers and yet having your own in the house was hard. And, and I got to say, my kid was a pretty easy teenager, but still the sort of guiding them into independence. And so um, really slowing down. I mean, I have a lot of practices when I talk about reflection, you know, I have a lot of practices that help me in that I meditate every day. I journal, write Every day I spend a lot of time, you know, I take walks and I think I, um, and I talk to other people and so on and so on. And that's all when we talk, sometimes I think we talk about reflection and people are like, well, what is that? What does that look like? Sound like, how can, how do I know if I'm reflecting? Like, that's a great question too. What are you, what insights do you come to? How do you understand yourself? And what's the impact that you see on others of everything that you're trying, including reflection? Did you know it is the 23rd year anniversary of Brave Writer? I started this company in January 2000, which always tickles my fancy because that's why I remember the date. <laughs> it was so auspicious at the time. But it blows my mind to think about the literal hundreds of thousands of families that have been helped around the world by our Brave Writer program. It all started with a product I called The Writer's Jungle. And when I wrote it, I wrote it with this in mind. I was wondering how to help parents be able to teach their kids to write without inciting rebellion and tears. I didn't turn to educator manuals or textbooks or the way teachers teach writing. Instead, I focused my attention on how I had learned to write under my mother's guidance, who happens to be a professional author who's written more than 70 books in her professional career. What I know about writing is that those people who want to be paid for their writing learn in a completely different manner than how we were taught in school. In other words, when you go to a writer's conference, they don't talk to you about grammar and punctuation and spelling. They don't talk to you about formats. Sometimes they'll talk to you about the structure of a genre, like the structure of a novel or the structure of a nonfiction book, but they focus first and foremost on one single question, and it's this one. So what have you got to say? <laughs> Why should I care? In other words, the message, the meaning, the voice of the writer is primary. And the strategies that you learn when you are in these professional writing environments 
are oriented to putting you in touch with the insights you want to express, whether that's a story in the fictional world, or it's a how-to book, or it's a memoir, or it's journalism. In other words, writing when you're a professional has to do with communicating a message first and foremost. We can slap on the format later. We can hire copy editors to ensure that the punctuation is accurate and the spellings are right. But what we can't do, the one thing we can't substitute for all that copy editing is the voice of the writer. There's only one person who can bring forth to the page the insights that are unique to the writer. So as I thought about teaching our kids, I realized that what worked best for me as a child and what was working well with my own five homeschooled kids was to help put them in touch with having something to say. I devised strategies that I thought would work well with kids. You know, this isn't an adult audience. So I understand that children are not yet fluent in the mechanics of writing, spelling, punctuation, grammar, and format. And yet, don't their ideas, their thoughts, and their insights deserve to be preserved and read by an interested audience? That's the foundation of my newly revised program called Growing Brave Writers. It's not available anywhere but in the Brave Writers store. We will leave you a link in the show notes to make it easy to get there. This program will last you for years. Here's why. It is designed to be processes that you use more than once. So when we talk about keenly observing detail, you will use that whether your child is in a co-op or doing homework from school or trying to describe something beautiful in your house for a homeschool writing assignment. When we talk about free writing, that section of the manual will serve you in good stead all the way through high school. The revision strategies will eliminate pain, tears, and the feeling of failure that attends so much of the revision work that kids are used to in school. I invite you to take a look. We have a sample to download, and I hope that you will give your children the gift of a solid foundation in writing. Growing Brave Writers is the place to begin. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. You know, I have this practice that I teach parents that I call a scatter book. And it may be because I was never that great at planning from planning in advance. I tend to plan from behind. I get inspired. I try something. I see the effects. I write down what I saw happen. And then that informs my future decisions. The scatter book is sort of this collection of papers and notes and uh, information and thoughts that help parents keep track of what they're observing and what they're experiencing and what their future plans and hopes are. It's sort of a place to collect ideas. I was listening to your coaching notebook podcast and something you said jumped out at me. You mentioned that you never put the names of your clients in your notebooks to protect confidentiality in case that notebook fell into someone else's hands. And that never occurred to me before. And I'm wondering, do you think a similar practice is important with parents and children? Do you think it would be important not to name them directly in a book, lest it fell into their hands? Or would you recommend some kind of a, um, you know, online place to store your thoughts rather than allowing your handwritten notes to be read? 
Yeah, I think it's worth consideration. And it depends a little bit on what your situation is, who you live with, how safe you feel your your notebook is. And so in that instance, I was talking about having notebooks. So as a coach, I used to travel to many different schools and there were times when I'd be sitting in the office and I'd be take, writing, you know, and I think once I walked out of the office and I had left my bag with my notebook in it, in the office. And that was when I thought nobody got it, but that was when I thought, what if someone else picked this up and flipped it open? Like whose notebook is this? So that was that context that might not be relevant if you have a notebook that you keep at home. But I think the question of protecting young people's privacy mm. is, I mean, we we talk a lot about that in terms of social media and sharing photos of our children and what we write about them in that public environment. So I think it's important to think about. And yes, I mean, I, I got to say, I... um. I when my mother passed away, I got her old notebooks and her journals and I had mixed feelings about what I read. That was my choice to read it, but I think having some anticipation of where data and writing might go is 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 important. Yeah, that I appreciate that. It was really it jumped out at me. I thought, yeah, that's true. There's a certain a certain amount of reflecting and thinking and sharing that we do either publicly or even privately, digitally, or in a notebook that could be picked up that could actually be problematic later. So I loved that. Um, I liked this other piece of advice. I've got many more questions for you, but I want to stick to this theme for a minute. Um, I loved this piece of advice, 15 minutes to prepare and five minutes to reflect. I would love to see parents apply this advice with their kids' education. When you're talking about preparation and reflection, a lot of times what I notice with parents is they want this idea of open and go curriculum, like where it doesn't require any preparation. You just open the notebook and it will magically teach your child. You work with educators all the time. Does that actually exist? Or is there even an understanding at school among teachers that even the most simple instruction benefits from some preparation. Maybe I'm softballing you my opinion here, but <laughs> what do you think? I, I I mean, I want to just say, I think the microwave was a terrible thing that happened to human beings. And what I'm pointing at is I think we've developed a mental model that things should be really fast. Yes. That you should be able to cook a baked potato in three minutes or whatever it is. <laughs> and, and it never tastes very good, right? A baked potato in the microwave. We know that. But this idea that everything should be fast and easy and we should just be able to get a script and read it or take a pill and feel better. And so I'm really wow. urging people to slow down and to be intentional and to think, to look at a curriculum or a lesson plan for students and think, where will this meet the needs of my child or my class of students? Where will where do I need to modify? Where do I need to change the opening question that's supposed to get them excited about this lesson? Everything needs nothing is there's no cookie cutter for you know patterns for teaching or really for life. And that's you know let's slow down and make slow food and teach slowly and be more intentional about our conversations. So even, I'll tell you, even when I'm going into a conversation with my husband where I anticipate, I want to be thoughtful about this. Like I'm a little nervous, whatever it is. I'm going to sit down and 
prepare. And when I prepare, I think about how do I want to feel at the end of this conversation? What do I want to be true? What do I want him to feel or experience or think? Those are some of the backwards planning kinds of questions that I use, whether it's a conversation with my husband that I think is going to be difficult or teaching a lesson or planning a coaching conversation. And afterwards, taking five minutes, how did that go? Did I reach my objectives? Yes, right. Because one of the things that makes you feel like you're not making progress is the inability to measure what you've done. And reflection allows you to measure. It doesn't mean measure like score or grades. It it simply means drawing and making meaning from what just took place. Wouldn't you agree? It's absolutely. It's, it's yeah. that capacity to know what took place and what it means. Uh, one practical idea that I loved from you was the notion that we can take time to consult our resources, this coaching notebook we're building, before we move forward with teaching or coaching our kids. Um, for me, I was picturing it kind of like this. Tell me if this sounds right to you. I want to teach my child how to divide fractions. So I remind myself by looking at my notes that this is the child who prefers to work side by side when learning something new. As I get into instructing the child, I realize that we are hitting a wall. So I will then pause to open a web page or the book and read from it while explaining to the child that I'm getting additional information to support us. Does that sort of hit the mark for you? It does, definitely. And I want to just emphasize that what we are modeling then for students or for our children is that we are continuous learners. And there are times when we get stuck, we need help, we can turn to our resources, our supports. Kids are watching us all the time. They take their cues from us. When we model, it's okay to not know how to do something. It's okay to be stumped. And it's okay to draw on your resources they internalize that. It's a really powerful lesson for them to see. I'm I'm wondering, this is occurring to me because of our conversation, if there's any value in a student who's of writing age, obviously not a kindergarten or first grader, but you know, like a middle schooler or high schooler taking notes about their own style of learning and what they need in order to feel successful. Have you ever experimented with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's what we want to be teaching them. So I taught everything between grades two and eight. And that was a big emphasis, particularly for middle school students around understanding themselves as learners, cultivating the metacognition to be able to recognize, here's what gets me stuck. This is how I can respond when I'm in those moments. This is how I thrive as a learner. This is what I need. And to be able to hear a sixth grader explain when they're reading a book or something, the things that can trip them up, the strategies that they have, the ways they understand themselves after they move through is that's the ultimate empowerment. That is what sets them on the path to be able to be learners in all kinds of situations, to be able to advocate for themselves, for what they need. I mean, it's an invaluable skill set. You know, that reminds me of something I heard from one of my adult kids he discovered that he is excellent at the work that he does. He's a programmer, but that he needs time to do it. He does not work well under pressure. So he needs to have enough time and he'll come up with a really brilliant solution, but he doesn't like those sort of um, firehouse, five alarm firehouse environments of many tech companies. So when he went to his interviews, he actually expressed that and he's actually worked in great environments because he knew that about himself going in. As you're saying that, I'm thinking, wow, 
that's the kind of self-awareness I hope kids can develop from a young age and advocate all the way through their learning years, not just when they're applying for a job as an adult. Really powerful stuff. It is. And like you just said, it's self-awareness. So we can help students learn self-awareness about their learning styles and about their communication, their emotional needs and their experiences. And that's such a fantastic example of the way that your son was able to take the learning that he had done about himself and extend it into this is how people thrive when we can transfer knowledge, transfer skills, extend it into the workplace, extend it into relationships. He might need to say the same thing in a relationship. I need time to process what you just shared. Can we continue this conversation later, right? It's that self-knowledge, self-awareness, and then having the confidence to be able to verbalize that, to act act on that. That's That's really a great example. Oh, that's, that's really powerful. I love, I think this notebooking thing has always been intriguing to me. It's something I practice for myself, but imagining it expanding out into these other arenas and then having the time to read back to yourself, what you noticed in another moment seems really powerful. So I want to pivot to this final um, conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I know there's strong priorities in your work And I am noticing that we're in this current climate of banning books that for me feels very uh, egregious when we're trying to talk about how to grow that self-awareness, how to even culturally become reflectors, right, on the past and how we imagine the future being. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of reading books that may be outside of our usual beliefs and worldview and also just feel free to comment on the book movement that's going on right now. Sure. Yes. For me, equity is at the center of all of my work. And it's really, I would say equity is a commitment to ultimately to liberation, to freedom, and to the kind of freedom that I know we all imagine that we envision wanting to live in communities where we feel safe, where we know our neighbors, where we celebrate with our neighbors, where our needs, our basic needs and and our not basic needs are met. Um, I feel very sad about the current climate, the political climate in the United States, which includes this book banning. Um, It just makes me feel incredibly sad. It makes me feel very confused about what so many people in our country espouse as values around freedom and lack of censorship and being able to end self-expression. And so it it, um, makes me very confused about how we can espouse those values and do something else. There is so much research about how reading books about people who may not be just like us cultivates empathy. And I have yet to meet anyone who doesn't believe that we all need more empathy. I mean, that's something that's just, there's so much research. Um, The books that people are banning or attempting to ban are books written by or about people who have been marginalized. So whether that is people of color, or LGBTQ people. So these are um, these are our people's experiences and voices that people who have more power, usually different kinds of power, are attempting to silence. And that just feels it's such a conflict, such a contrast with our American values. 
And so those are those are experiences and stories that need and deserve to be shared. Those are voices that deserve to be shared for the sake of all of our communities and our collective healing. They need to be shared and read and heard. I just think about for myself personally, both books that I read that gave me tremendous insight into people whose lives were so different from mine and how I just had to read one book about that kind of experience and it changed the way I saw people. I remember so many years ago, I was a teenager and I read a book and the main character was extremely overweight and she was describing her life. And I had never, I hadn't had any friends who had had that experience. And I just read this and I had such a tremendous surge of empathy. And from then on, when I saw people who were really overweight, it had really changed the assumptions I'd made about them, the judgment I had about them. And it was an incredible transformative experience reading that book. And so it, you know, there's, um, there's, I think one of the things that I feel very sad about the book banning, but it also makes me feel like a, a grief, um, which is sadness because there's just a loss of the possibility. It's a, it's a loss of curiosity. It's a loss of being open and willing to, I do, I will say, I do understand when people say this conflicts with my values. I understand that. And the books don't have to be banned. You don't have to read them, maybe. You don't have to, you know, but we can still learn. I have a lot of values. I, I, um, you know, I have values and I still read books that conflict with those. And it helps me think more clearly about how to argue with those people, really. So we don't have to ban books. And sometimes our ideas can change. I don't think there's... um, I mean, I do also, you know, I understand that a book can change a life and a book can be really powerful. And if we live in the United States and espouse these values of liberty and freedom for all, then what are we doing banning books? I just don't get it. It feels to me like there is a resistance in part because people are trying to control our imaginations. We don't want to think outside of the familiar. And yet it is because of brave writers throughout history, brave writer, my company, (laughs) courageous writers throughout history who have taken the risk to put down to paper or to cave wall um, the record of what it means to be human. And that includes stories that make us uncomfortable And I agree with you. Sometimes I like to say this. I have a book called Raising Critical Thinkers. And what I say in there is that it doesn't always even lead to empathy. Sometimes it deepens your horror to read. You know, it's like when we listen to true crime podcasts, we don't do that only to gain empathy. Sometimes it's to realize, wow, the factors that led this person to believe that murder was the best solution in this circumstance are really horrifying. What are we doing about that? So sometimes reading actually helps you discover on some level a variety of factors that go into what it means to be human. And the value system of Americans or even globally shift over time, but they cannot shift in a healthy way if we are excluding voices from the table. We absolutely need to amplify those who have been repressed and suppressed and oppressed in history, because those are very important experiences that we are likely to repeat if we are not horrified by the systems that created that oppression to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And then we look at countries, you know, with 
banning books is the beginning of so many very, very bad times in history. And so, you know, it's like banning books, fascism, concentration camps. Do we really want to go down that route? I, you know, the other thing, though, that I'll say is um, when I hear about communities that are so active to ban books, I really wonder what are they so afraid of and how do we address that fear? And there's fear of loss and fear of change and fear of the other. And um, that is a conversation that I teach people how to have. That's part of what I do in my in my company is we teach people how to have conversations with people who maybe they think disagree with them. We teach people how to have conversations about hard emotions like grief yes. and loss and fear. Wow, that's fabulous. That's perfect. In fact, why don't you share with us for people who are interested, how they can reach you and be involved in your work, because I would really like people to know what you do. Thank you. So uh, I have a podcast, the Bright Morning Podcast, which is really good. (laughs) I've I've listened to many of the shows. It's really good. Thank you. Yeah. And on there, I demonstrate what those conversations sound like. I give people really explicit instructions. Here's how to do it. I have a whole series that came out in the spring of 2022 called What to Say When You Hear Something Racist. And I'm really committed to telling people how to do things and not just like, this is bad, we should do something, but here's how. My website is brightmorningteam.com and you can find links to the social media platforms that we're on. So those are two good starting places. I've written seven books and many of those are relevant to parents. Um, My book Onward is about emotional resilience. There's a lot in that book that is relevant to children as well. And so those are some places to start. Oh, that's perfect. We will put all of that in the show notes to make it very easy for the listeners. But Elena, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful that you said yes to be on our podcast. And I loved meeting you. Oh, thank you so much, Julie. I really appreciated this conversation too. I so enjoyed having Elena on today's show. Her practical tools and her breadth of experience give us the courage to be parents who coach our children to lead effective lives, to enjoy their educations, and to be prepared for life beyond the family. I hope you'll take advantage of her resources. Check out our show notes to learn more about where you can connect with Elena. This is the part of the podcast where I ask you to leave a review. You can leave stars or words, whatever your choice is. If you've already left a review, thank you so much. You never know, Natalie might read yours one of these weeks. The truth is I love podcasting and I couldn't do it without you. I'd love your ideas for the next topics you'd like me to discuss on the show. To let us know, reach out to us via our SMS or texting number. That number is one 833 947-3684. I know that's a mouthful. Don't worry. It's in the show notes. Simply text the word pod to be added to the podcast group. And then just text us any ideas you have for future shows. We're already building a beautiful Excel spreadsheet with all your ideas. Hey, everyone. It's Natalie again with the Brave Writer team. I so love looking through your five-star reviews And I've got another one today, and I think it's from someone named Biker Girl, but it's spelled B-I-K-U-R-G-U-R-L. It's titled, Julie is my awesome adulting mentor. 
From education to awesome adulting, Julie Bogart has the uncanny ability to meet us where we are on our adulting journey, be it as home educators, parents, sisters, daughters, and bring us into her fold of permission to be ourselves while helping us to choose our relationships over all else. Julie's love of people and being a life coach and mentor has been a gift. Just amazing content. Thank you so much for all your encouragement through the years, Julie. Thank you to Biker Girl. Don't forget to submit your five-star review so we can share it here on the podcast. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to The Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you. Thank you.